Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. children of the night. Come in out of this January cold. Watch the cabin door. It's a little loose on the hinges. Whoever lived here before was a bit rough on it. I haven't quite gotten around to fixing it up. The fire is warm and the furniture a bit rickety, but I think you'll find it comfortable. I have some hot cider. Go ahead, pour yourself a mug. I'll be telling you a story tonight. I have to admit I do feel a bit self-conscious about running stories that I narrated. I'm concerned that all of you will get a bit tired of hearing old Stephen Kilpatrick's voice, but we've still got a handful of them that I recorded before I took the wheel of Tales to Terrify. Tonight's story comes from Joe McKinney. I had also narrated his wonderful story, Resurrecting Mindy, way back in episode 100. That was a really good story, and if you've joined our family of miscreants recently, I'd recommend checking out a few of our earlier episodes. I confess, I'm a zombie fan, but a jaded one. A zombie story has to have a bit of a trick to it to make it stand out anymore, and Mr. McKinney's Resurrecting Mindy did just that. But you're here tonight for his story, Pete's Big Break. Do you remember Unsolved Mysteries, hosted by Robert Stack? I remember seeing some of those early episodes when I was a bit younger than I am today, and losing sleep to the idea that monsters roam the woods not too far from my home. And Unsolved Mysteries suggested that monsters did just that. Joe McKinney's Pete's Big Break will have some of just that. Stay tuned for that. But a little bit about the author. Joe McKinney is the San Antonio-based author of several horror, crime, and science fiction novels. His longer works include the four-part Dead World series, made up of Dead City, Apocalypse of the Dead, Flesh Eaters, and The Zombie King. 
the science fiction disaster tale, Quarantined, which was nominated for the Horror Writers Association's Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in a novel, 2009. In the crime novel, Dodging Bullets, his upcoming releases include the horror novel Lost Girl of the Lake, The Red Empire, The Charge, and Saint Rage. Joe has also worked as an editor, along with Michelle McRae, on the zombie-themed anthology Dead Set, and with Mark Onspa on the abandoned building-themed anthology The Forsaken. His short stories and novellas have been published in more than 30 publications and anthologies. In his day job, Joe McKinney is a sergeant with the San Antonio Police Department, where he helps to run the city's 911 dispatch center. Before promoting to sergeant, Joe worked as a homicide detective and as a disaster mitigation specialist. Many of his stories, regardless of genre, feature a strong police procedural element based on his 15 years of law enforcement experience. A regular guest at regional writing conventions, Joe currently lives and works in a small town north of San Antonio with his wife and children. And now, a story that could only come from a Texan cop, Joe McKinney's Pete's Big Break. Pete Ward watched as the thing mutilated two of his dogs, its motorized gears turning under a blanket of fake dog fur simulating alien digestion. Pete looked to his right, where John Carpenter stood next to his camera crew and his assistant, staring at the carnage without expression, his eyes unblinking. Then Carpenter raised his left hand and made a snapping motion to Pete, the signal. Pete turned back to his dogs, to Ginger, the lead female of the group, and raised his hand at her, the palm down. Her muzzle came up, her eyes on his hand. Misted air streamed from her nostrils. Pete flicked his hand up, palm to Ginger, and made a motion like a shove. Taking the cue perfectly, Ginger began to back up and whimper. Pete had her keep doing it until Carpenter yelled, And cut! Pete dropped his hand, but held his breath. He looked over at Carpenter, waiting for a word. The director put a hand on his cameraman's shoulder, and the man stepped back to let Carpenter have a look into the screen. A few moments passed. Then Carpenter looked up, found Pete and the crowd of men working on the set, and mouthed one word, Outstanding. Pete let out the breath he had been holding. Then a giddy excitement came over him. The giddiness was partly the vodka and coke he'd been nipping throughout that night's shoot and partly pure dumb joy. He was proud of his dogs, and he was proud of himself. They had done a great job together. Even Skipper, the big neutered male who was ordinarily jumpy and shy around loud mechanical props, had done a great job with the whirling thingamajig that was supposed to be a monster from beyond the stars in John Carpenter's latest sci-fi horror film, The Thing. Pete stepped into the lights and knelt down in the snow in front of his dogs. He was a little drunker than he thought, and he wobbled under the weight of the six full-grown sled dogs as they gathered around him, yapping happily. Pete heard himself laughing. "'Excuse me,' it was John Carpenter. The dogs sat, one after the other, their tails sweeping the snow and barely contained excitement. They had taken a liking to Carpenter the first time they'd seen him, since that he was a natural leader. "'Yes, sir, Mr. Carpenter,' Pete said, rising to his feet. Carpenter said, that was exactly what I wanted. It looked great. He reached forward and scratched Marianne, the little female behind the ears. Her tongue danced crazily between her teeth and her eyes rolled up into her head. She had always been the little lover in the pack, ecstatic whenever she got the slightest human affection. Thank you, sir, 
Carpenter was still petting Mary Ann, smiling at her. The man clearly liked dogs, and to Pete, that said volumes about his character. Mr. Carpenter, I can tell this is going to be a great picture. Carpenter laughed, sending waves of wrinkles up into the bald spot above his forehead. You got good ass-guessing skills. Next time the studio wants to talk to me about the budget, I'll be sure to have them talk to you. He smiled and showed he was only having fun, then said, Your first name's Pete, right? Yes, sir. Well, you do great work, Pete. Listen, some of the cast is getting together in the rec room later if you want to come by. Pete beamed at him. Yes, sir, thanks. Carpenter went off without another word, leaving Pete with his dogs. Pete stroked Ginger's neck. You hear that, guys? I think he likes us. Ginger looked past him and barked once. Pete turned and saw Janice coming at him through one of the hallways that wound through the interior of the compound. She was short, squat, dark-skinned woman with Eskimo blood in her veins, but she moved gracefully, almost daintily, through the patches of wet ice on the ground. Well? she asked. Her round brown face was shiny with the cold. What did he say? He loved it, Pete said. She rose up on her toes and let out a little squeal of delight. The dogs? They did good? Real good, he said. He picked up on the slur in his voice, but wasn't sure if she had or not. He knew the vodka wouldn't smell on his breath, which was why it had become his drink of choice many, many years ago. But he also knew that if anybody could tell he'd been drinking, it'd be Janice. After twenty years together, good times and the bad, she'd come to know him in just about all his stripes. He looked down at his hands in hers. I'm so happy for you, she said. Do you think this will mean more work? He nodded. I think so. Her smile thinned slightly. She peered up at him. Pete, are you okay? Yeah, he said. He had always liked the way she said okay, the little rise and pitch on the last syllable, and he smiled at her. I'm fine, tired. Your eyes look a little red, she said. I'm fine. It's these damn wind machines. They dry out the air. He licked the fronts of his teeth, trying to taste if there was any trace of the vodka still there. He said, Carpenter invited me to the cast party tonight. That's great, she said. She squeezed his hands in the big Eskimo grin he had fallen in love with more than two decades ago, when he was a fireman for the Alaskan Pipeline and she was a 16-year-old waitress in a Juno pool hall, came back in all its glory. If she had started to suspect he was drinking again, she had evidently backed away from confronting him about it, and Pete was glad for that. Things were finally starting to look up for him now, and he didn't want to have a fight with her about his drinking, which had started up in earnest about the same time he'd signed on with Carpenter's production company. I'm going to put the dogs up, he said. How about I meet you in the trailer in a little bit? Okay, she said. Come hungry, I'm making chili. He waited for her to go, then put the dogs back on their leashes and led them outside to their kennel. They were filming in Kimberley, British Columbia, and through the magic of special effects, John Carpenter and his crew had managed to make the set look like it might actually be Antarctica. They had built up a compound of several small metal buildings and used snow plows to push dunes of snow halfway up the sides of those buildings. During shooting, giant fans blew loose snow through the compound to make it look like they were dealing with heavy weather. But now, with the activity winding down for the evening, there was none of that. The night was calm, the sky was full of stars, and while it was cold, it wasn't unpleasant. He got the dogs into their kennel, laid out their food and bedding, and was about to step outside when Marianne started whimpering. What is it, girl? She whimpered again and turned in a circle. You got a pee? He asked her. She walked to the grate and put a paw on the latch. Okay, he said and chuckled. Okay, come on. 
He led her outside. She went off to a clearing next to the kennel and squatted in the snow, tongue lolling out of the side of her mouth. Ever the lady, eh? He said and chuckled again. He was feeling good, feeling fine, in fact. He took a drink of his Coke and vodka and leaned his head back to take in the enormity of the Canadian sky. There was so much beauty in it, milky with starlight, and for a moment he felt like his feet were leaving the earth and he was floating free. He hadn't felt this good, this confident of the future since the early days in Juno. Back then, back when thirty seemed like something that would only happen to other men, the world had been a road that promised to roll on forever. But thirty had long since come and gone, and even forty was a cloudy memory. He had put a lot of hard miles on the old chassis since those days back in Juno, and he wasn't so proud anymore. Getting beat down every day of his life will do that to a man. But there's no shame in getting beat down unless you fail to get back up, and he had gotten back up every single time. He felt good about that. Yeah, he was drinking again, and yeah, eventually there'd come a reckoning with that. Janice wouldn't be happy, but he had it under control. His future, too. Carpenter liked him. The guys on the set liked him. Hell, this was just the beginning. He'd do this sci-fi film, then hopefully some kind of picture based on a Jack London book, and before you know it, he'd be back on top of the world again. So, yeah, he felt good. He was back in the... The thought broke off clean in his mind. Something smelled really bad, like rotten meat. He blinked his eyes. They were watering. What in the hell was that? A pile of ham sandwiches one of the Union guys tossed out? Whatever it was, it was nasty. Behind him, Marianne started to growl. He glanced back at her and saw the fur bristling down her spine, her lips rippling against the white jagged line of her bared fangs. She was suddenly a different dog. Her eyes held an unblinking wolf-like intensity. She moved forward in a deliberate crouch, ears flattened, a stuttering growl rising from somewhere deep in her chest. Pete turned and followed the track of her gaze. There was nothing out there but the dark and the starlight glittering faintly off the silvered snow. He turned toward his little Marianne. What the hell's wrong with... She lunged past him in her ferocious, snarling rage. Pete fell back, stunned more than frightened, landing on his butt in the snow. He didn't stand up. He didn't even have a chance to call out to Marianne. By the time his mind could process what was going on, his sweet little dog was tearing into an enormous, staggering figure on the edge of the darkness. At first, Pete's mind told him it was a man wearing a huge fur coat, maybe one of the crew in a prop suit, but it wasn't a man, not of that size. Even doubled over to swat away Marianne, the creature, for that was the only word Pete's mind could latch onto, was taller than any man Pete had ever seen. It let out a series of startled grunts as it fell backwards, as though it couldn't believe that something so much smaller than itself could hurt it so badly. Marianne was like a blender trying to tear into the thing's legs and groin, Blood sprayed through the air, dotting the snow at Pete's feet. The creature lurched sideways and fell into a nest of electrical cords. It swatted at the cords as it crashed to the ground and somehow managed to bring part of the wall down with it. The next instant, Marianne's snarls were cut off by a yelp and the sickening crunch of bone. Marianne's back legs landed a few feet in front of Pete, a bloody mess of gut sagging out of the mangled torso and steaming in the snow. Pete Crab walked away from it, whimpering in fear and disgust. One of the dog's legs was jutting obscenely into the night sky, and Pete couldn't look away. He shook his head. Marianne, Jesus, oh Jesus. The creature let out a booming roar full of pain and rage. 
Pete turned, white beads of spit flying from his lips with every gasping breath he took, and saw the creature wrapped up in a tangled mass of orange and yellow electrical cords. It was struggling to tear the cords loose, but couldn't. Why, you... Pete said. You killed my dog. He scrambled to his feet. You killed my dog. The next instant, he was behind the creature, a knot of cords clutched tightly in his fists. He yanked hard, pulled with everything he had. The cords caught around the thing's neck, and it rose from the ground, gagging, its fingers tearing at the tightening loops under its chin. It half-turned, then it flashed its yellow, rage-filled eyes at Pete. But Pete refused to let go. Instead, he screamed at the thing and pulled even harder on the cords. There was a rage that lived in him, always had, especially when he drank, and now that rage had dropped a red curtain over his mind, and he wanted nothing more than to kill the thing. His arms were shaking. He was gritting his teeth so tightly the gums were bleeding, and still he kept pulling on the cords, nearly blind with rage, as he strangled the creature that had killed his dog. He wasn't sure what happened next, or how long it took. All he knew was that one moment his mind was empty, nothing but red rage, and the next he felt suddenly clear-headed and awake. A trembling breath escaped his lips. The thing had gone limp, its massive, hairy arms lying still in the snow. Pete's arms were aching, his fingers too. He let go of the electrical cords and the massive creature dropped to the ground. "'What in the hell are you?' he said aloud. He moved around the body, staring at the matted fur, at the massive muscles in the arms and legs all the deep bleeding cuts and tears where Marianne's teeth had ripped into the flesh. The thing was enormous. It had to be nine feet tall at least. It looked like a gorilla, but somehow not a gorilla. It was too big, too human-looking, except for the sloping forehead and the massive lower jaw. He looked down the bloody length of the thing to its feet, and that's when it hit him. The name of the thing. Back in Alaska, back in his younger days, he'd heard stories from the drunks in the bar. But those were only stories, weren't they? Weren't they? Standing there in the cold night air, Pete felt the booze hit him again. The rage had swept it from him momentarily, but he was feeling pretty tight right now. He blinked at the motionless creature face up in the nest of electrical cords, and all at once his eyes started to water. Oh, Jesus, he muttered and turned and ran for his trailer. Janice was at the stove when he got there, stirring the pot of chili she'd promised him. "'Pete?' she asked when he burst through the door. "'Pete, are you okay?' He was standing in the doorway, chest heaving. She put the spoon down on the counter and stepped into the light to see him better. "'Is that blood on your face? Pete, are you okay?' He reached out and grabbed her hand. The motion was so fast, so rough, she gasped. "'Pete, you're, you're hurting me.' "'Come on, you've got to see this.' He pulled her towards the open door. "'Pete, what? Stop. I can't go nowhere. I got the chili on.' Come on, woman, come with me. He was breathing fast, chest heaving, his eyes overbright, crazy looking. I gotta show you this. Why wasn't she hurrying? Couldn't she see how important this was? She stepped back into the kitchenette and killed the burner. He grabbed her hand again and pulled her towards the door. My coat, she said. She had barely enough time to snatch it from the back of a chair as he pulled her outside. Pete, stop. Let me go. You're hurting my arm. He dropped her wrist and hurried off toward the kennels. She followed as best she could, but she was heavy and her legs short and the snow was deep. While he reached the spot where Marianne's mangled corpse still lay, cooling in the snow, he stopped. Sodium vapor lights from a nearby building cast a buttery glow over the walkway behind him, but even in the indirect light, he could see blood spatter everywhere. 
She stopped on the walkway behind him. Pete? She had the back of her hand over her mouth, eyes wide. It was right here, he said angrily. I I killed it. You killed... She took a step forward. Marianne's face was just visible through a tangle of bloody electrical cords. Pete, what did you do? The creature. I killed it. He paused there, looking off toward the dark line of the trees in the near distance. It was right here. He looked at the mess of cords, at the blood, at Mary Ann. Oh, Pete. It was right here, damn it. I choked it. I killed it. She didn't speak, just stared at him in disbelief. Christ, he muttered. Pete, she asked. Pete, will you come with me? Let me get you cleaned up. You go, he said. Go on, I'll be there in a minute. I want to... He pulled at the tangled pile of electrical cords helplessly. The anger was starting to give way to exhaustion, to hopelessness, the way it always did with him. I want to bury her first. Carpenter wanted one of the dogs to enter the kennel, go down on its belly, and wait patiently for Richard Mauser, who was playing a character named Clark, to kill the lights. The other dogs were supposed to be resting, crashed out on their sides, not much interest in getting up or even aware an alien imposter had just entered their kennel. It wouldn't have been a problem with Mary Ann. She wasn't at all dominant. When she entered the pack, the others tended to let her be. Most of the time, they just ignored her. She would have been perfect for what Carpenter wanted, but Mary Ann was in a shallow grave behind one of the garages, and Pete was stuck using Ginger. It wasn't working out. When Ginger entered her room, she dominated. She was the alpha. The others got excited. They couldn't help themselves. Time and again, Mazur led her into the kennel, and each time Skipper and Professor and Gilligan started wagging their tails. They raised their heads. They panted. Skipper barked. They all wanted to jump up and crowd around her. Cut! Carpenter yelled. He was getting upset. Where's Pete? Here, sir, Pete said. Carpenter was a tall man. Somebody handed him a cigarette, and Carpenter lit it, took a drag, and let out a long stream of smoke. Then he put a hand on Pete's shoulder and led him off to one side. Pete, listen, he said. Pete listened. He listened as Carpenter quietly, calmly explained what he wanted. The man was frustrated, angry that his time was being wasted, but he hid it well. And he listened to Carpenter's quiet instructions. He was reminded of the incident that had ended his time on the Alaskan pipeline. Pete had managed a construction crew at the time. They'd just run a three-mile-long section of pipe 15 degrees off course, costing British Petroleum tens of millions of dollars and months of delays. But the BP exec who showed up to survey the screw never once raised his voice. He talked to Pete with the same sort of civility the super-powerful reserve for the janitors who empty their office waste baskets at night. But later, that same executive rained hell on Pete's boss. Even though the man had never so much as raised his voice, Pete considered those few polite minutes he spent with the big man from the home office to be the worst ass-chewing he'd ever received. Pete was having that same feeling right now, listening to Carpenter. "'Where's that really friendly one?' Carpenter said. "'The one I petted last night.' Pete felt his face grow hot. "'She's, uh, not doing so good,' Pete said. "'She's sick?' Carpenter 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Look genuinely concerned. Hurts her. She was uh, trying to... Um on the gate, you know, she cut herself on a nail. She's um, resting back at my trailer. Carpenter nodded. How about you? You feeling okay? You seem distracted. No, sir. I, I mean, I'm fine, sir. Okay. Carpenter's attention drifted back to the kennel, his gaze following the camera's angle on the shot. Listen, Pete, I need to get the live animal shots done today, tomorrow at the very latest. Once I bring in the machinery for the transformation scene and all that goop starts flying everywhere, it's going to be too expensive to go back and try again. Can you make this happen for me? I I think so. Pete felt suddenly lightheaded, like he couldn't concentrate. Too much booze last night after seeing that fucking thing tear Marianne to pieces. Oh, Jesus, he thought. Marianne. Pete? Hey, buddy, you listening to me? Huh, I... Yes, sir. Carpenter didn't look at all convinced. I don't think your head's in the right place today, Pete. No, sir, I... No, Pete, stop there, okay? When you work for me, I expect your head to be in the game, and right now, yours isn't. Go back to your trailer, take a walk, whatever. Be back here first thing in the morning with you and your dogs ready to work, okay? Pete started to protest again, but Carpenter wasn't having it. He had already turned and given the signal to change out the setup. Just like that... Pete had been dismissed. He had nobody to blame but himself. Pete understood that. The dogs keyed off of him. He was anxious, distracted, and in his own way grief-stricken. The dogs sensed the bad energy coming off him, and they behaved in kind. They were anxious, easily confused, and in their own way aware that Pete was in pain. They whined as he put them into their kennel. Mr. Howell gave him a quick, hurt look as Pete shoved him inside the gate. It's okay, boy, not your fault. He nodded toward the food bowls. Go on, eat up. He looked at the rest of the pack. They had food, but none of them were eating. They stared back at him with their blue-gray eyes so full of questions, like children who don't understand why they're being punished. Go on, he said. They were still staring at him, and it made him feel like a first-rate bastard. I'll check on you guys tonight. Pete closed the gate and latched it. He went outside and dug through a snow berm next to the door where he'd buried half a bottle of vodka. Then he went over to the walkway where Marianne had died and took a drink and watched the dark line of trees in the distance. He took another drink, a long one this time. The chill should have made the vodka smooth, but it hurt going down. 
He held the back of his hand up to his lips and closed his eyes until the pain went away. When he opened them again, they were burning. He could feel tears on his cheeks. He stood there, watching the trees in the distance, tilting the bottle back now and then. Strange that he hadn't thought at all about the creature. Last night, after burying Mary Ann, she'd been the only thing he could think of. The creature, well, that had been such a shock he hadn't even been able to take in its significance yet. Or maybe he had. Maybe the shock was so bad that his mind just skipped the part where he was supposed to ask questions, doubt himself. Either way, he supposed it didn't much matter. But the funny thing was, he'd never even doubted that Janice would believe him. He had vague, hazy memories of the night before, of crashing through the door with his head on fire, convinced that he'd killed the thing, and just as convinced that Janice would believe him, even when he dragged her back to the spot where he'd left the thing's body and found that it wasn't there, it never occurred to him that she wouldn't believe him. People who saw ghosts, he thought, probably acted the same way. Now, though, now he could see it a different way. That woman, she'd thought he'd done that horrible thing to Mary Ann. She believed him capable of that. After all, they'd been through together, all the years, all the hard times, she'd believed him capable of that. Yeah, he could see that now. The crazy woman. He lifted the bottle to his lips and drained it. Pete was thoroughly lit when he staggered back into his trailer. Somewhere in the back of his head, a small, sensible voice was trying to tell him what would happen if he kept going. He'd get the bottle he had stashed behind the couch. He'd go out into the snow and drink and drink and drink until he was nearly blind, and then he'd puke his guts out and go to sleep it off in the kennel. Never mind Janice. She'd be worried. She'd go looking for him, but never mind her. He was tired of skulking around. A man shouldn't have to be that way. A man had a right to get lit up if he wanted. Never mind her. He let the trailer screen door slam behind him and went to the couch. He pulled it away from the wall and looked down into an empty space. For a moment, he was confused. He didn't remember drinking it. Where had it gone? Pete. He straightened up. Janice. God damn it. He turned to face her. She was standing in the doorway to their bedroom, her cheeks shining with tears. You're drinking again, she said. Pete, why? Things were going so well for us. They were finally going our way. Shut up, he said. The words came out cold and flat. He could feel the anger boiling up inside him. He had been angry before, but this was different. This was the other man talking, the resentful, rage-filled man who lived inside him. That man had been asleep for the last few years, but last night had roused him, and this, these needling accusations from Janice, they were bringing the rage man around again. But Janice didn't seem to realize it. She was still staring at him, and though the tears were still there, her neck had stiffened and her eyes had narrowed. She wanted to fight. She wanted that other man to come out, even though she knew the violence of which he was capable. Why was she doing this? Why was she courting disaster? Leave me alone he said under his breath, seething. Walk away and leave me alone. You bastard, what gives you the right? This was supposed to be our big break. That's what you said. That's what you promised. Follow me, you said. I'll make it right. You said that, Pete. And now all you want to do is self-destruct? You can't do that to me. Not again. Leave me alone. I don't want to talk about this right now. Just close the door and go back to sleep. We'll talk tomorrow. It'll be too late tomorrow. I want to... Do as I tell you, woman, he yelled. God damn it, why is that so hard? The rage man was awake now. 
He was in control of Pete's mind now, and there was no turning back. Pete took two large strides towards Janice, and his mind once again a blank red sheet, his face hot, no idea what he was going to do, but knowing that it was going to hurt. You bet your ass it's going to hurt. He didn't even see what she threw at him, something small and heavy. It caught him in the mouth and bounced off into the dark near the record player. Pete put his fingers to his lips. They came away dripping blood. His tongue found a hurt tooth, and when he wriggled it, it snapped off. He spit the tooth and a wad of blood under the rug. His gaze lingered on the white tooth, so bright against the blood, and then he looked at her. You crazy! You stay away from me! She screamed, the trailer filled with flying objects, clothes, books, records, bowls, their alarm clock, all came flying in his head. Pete threw up an arm over his face and fell back, growling through his teeth. Get out! She screamed, still hurling anything she could find at him. He pushed open the screen door and staggered out into the snow. Some of the union guys were standing around smoking cigarettes over by the commissary doors and their conversation stopped as they turned their attention on him. But Pete didn't care. Never mind them. He turned back towards the trailer and yelled Janice's name. A second later, she erupted out of the door, a buttery light from the living room spilling over the snow, her wild hair making her look like the silhouette of a woman on fire. The next instant, she was hurling his stuff outside. Stop it, he yelled. Cut it out! More debris from their lives together filled the air. He swatted at one of their kitchen glasses and it shattered. His knuckles were bleeding now, but it didn't register. All he felt was rage. Something heavy hit his shoulder and he lost his balance, ending up on one knee. When he stood back up, she was holding the bottle of vodka he'd been looking for behind the couch. Is this what you want? Is it? You want this more than us? Take it then. I hope you choke on it. He saw the vodka flying at his head. He reached up and caught it one-handed. She stood there, staring at him, her chest heaving with rage. Then she went back inside, slamming the door behind her. Once again, the little courtyard between the commissary and their trailer slipped into darkness. The union guys clapped. Pete glared at them, but that only prompted more catcalls. Guess you're really in the doghouse now, eh, Pete? Damn, Pete, she beat your ass. Hey, don't worry, Pete. If she gets lonely, I got it taken care of. The last guy made a hitching noise like he was telling a horse to speed it up. His buddies roared with laughter. Pete clutched the neck of the vodka bottle tighter, blood squeezing out between his fingers and dripping into the snow. Then his gaze locked onto something Janice had thrown at him. A small black duffel bag. His gun bag. He reached down and slid the zipper open. Inside was a blued Smith & Wesson thirty-eight revolver with walnut grips and two speed loaders. He took out the revolver, and right away, the catcalls stopped. They were soon replaced by uneasy muttering. Pete slid the revolver into the waistband of his jeans. He put the speed loaders in his jacket pocket. Then he staggered off toward the kennel. The dogs whimpered and whined when he entered. Easy there, he said, trying to sound reassuring, even though he could hear the slur in his voice. The dogs watched him anxiously. Ginger barked a few times, and one or two of the others joined her. Something had them really worked up. Shh, he said. This won't take me long. He grabbed the flashlight from the toolbox and went out again. He saw the footprints a few minutes later. They were enormous, almost big enough he could have sat down on the rim, his feet dangling into the well. 
They led off into the dark tree line he had been watching earlier that evening, right after the embarrassing incident with Carpenter. Why hadn't he thought to look for these things last night? Didn't people always say that's all you ever saw of these creatures, their enormous footprints? This was his chance. Janice thought he had actually killed his own dog. How she could believe that, he had no clue, but finding one of those things would silence her doubts for good. Once she saw the truth, she'd realize why he'd got good and drunk. Hell, she'd probably join him. He took a long drink, glanced back at the encampment, the soft white glow of the lights bleeding up into the sky, and went off after the creature that had made the footprints. He hadn't made it too far into the woods before the smell hit him. Maybe he had killed the thing after all, he thought. It used the last of its strength to limp off here, into the woods, to die. Or maybe it was still alive, but badly wounded. That too would explain why it was sticking around. He surveyed the darkness between the trees with his flashlight until he found the footprints again. Crashing through the underbrush, he could see blood and bits of fur on the branches. Getting close, he thought. A few minutes later, he came to a spot where the brush suddenly thinned. Ahead of him, a large black tree had fallen next to a small ice-covered pond. Two animal paths went around the fallen tree, one low, one high. The snow on the high trail looked undisturbed, but something big had slid down the slope of the lower trail, and recently, too. He could see brown earth through the snow. The smell, too, was strong here. He killed a flashlight and pulled his revolver. Then he went down the slope and inched his way toward the edge of the ice pond so he could see under the fallen tree. The tree had created a natural lean-to shelter with a long mound of earth forming a sort of bench inside, like a baseball dugout. On the bench, on its back, was a creature he thought he'd killed. One arm was hanging off the side of the bench listlessly. It looked badly hurt. Even in the dark, Pete could see bloody wounds all down its massive length. And that wasn't all. There was another creature very much like the first tending the wounded one, it was sitting on the snow, one arm thrown over the chest of its mate, its face nuzzled against the hurt one's cheek. It looked like some sort of relic from the Pleistocene, an unbelievably massive gorilla, or something like it, and yet its grief was hauntingly human, as was its tenderness. Pete let out a groan. It was barely audible, but loud enough for the creature to hear. Its head shot up, and when it turned around, there was a yellow, hate-filled malevolence that Pete didn't need his translator to read. It stood up, and it was enormous, easily nine feet tall. The smell of rotting meat moved with it. A growl sounded from deep within its chest, and Pete took a step back, his heel snapping a twig there. The sound brought him back into the moment. He flicked the flashlight up and caught the thing in the face with the beam. The creature turned its head, one enormous arm coming up to shield its eyes. Pete didn't let it adjust to the glare. He raised his pistol and fired, hitting the thing high up on its shoulder. The creature let out a roar of pain and fell back against the fallen tree, and before the shot could completely echo off of the trees, he brought the gun back on target and fired a second shot. This time the creature scrambled away, still howling in rage and pain, its mighty bulk ripping through the underbrush. And that left just the two of them, Pete and the wounded creature. The thing turned its sick-looking eyes towards him. It tried to raise one of its arms, but couldn't. It was dying. And I'm going to help, Pete said. He raised the pistol for another shot, and as he stared into the creature's eyes over the pistol's front sight and thumbed back the hammer, he thought how much he was going to enjoy this. You bet I will. Pete made his way back to the encampment, holding the severed head of the creature in his arms like a kid trying to carry a giant pumpkin. 
Janice would take one look at this and shit her pants. Then maybe they could get down to figuring out how things were going to be from here on out. No more hiding his liquor. It was his house, damn it. His rules. The cast and crew, he guessed, were off in the rec room, letting off a little steam. He could hear a Beatles song coming from their radio over there. Pete had always hated the Beatles. Merle Haggard, that was more Pete's speed. Maybe a little Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. But the music didn't concern him just now. He and Janice, they had bigger fish to fry. He made it to his trailer and popped the head off one of the tiki torches along the walkway. Then he dropped the creature's head down on top of the torch's base. He twisted the head around so that it was facing the front door of the trailer. Satisfied with his work, Pete went inside. The place was a wreck. Janice was in the bedroom, putting her stuff into a brown leather suitcase. She turned around when she heard the screen door slam. What are you doing? he asked her. She straightened defiantly. Moving out. The hell you are. He advanced on her. Her eyes flicked down to the gun tucked into his waistband and went wide with sudden terror. Stay away from me. Not going to happen, Janice. You're coming outside of me right now. I got something you need to see. He was in the doorway to their bedroom now, still closing on her. She had backed up to the bed and couldn't go any further. But when he reached for her, she was ready. She had a small mason jar full of coins in one hand and she swung it at him, catching him in the ear. It shattered into a thousand shards of glass and a spray of pennies and nickels. For a second, Pete's world went black. When he opened them again, he was on the carpet, not quite able to see straight. But he could see Janice's legs in front of him, and he lunged for them. He wrapped his arms around her knees and held on with everything he had. She staggered above him and then fell backwards into a pile of dirty laundry. He groaned. Get away from me! Get off me! He pulled himself up on top of her, brought his arm back, his hand balled into a bleeding fist. But before he could throw the punch, the screen door blasted inward. The whole trailer shook with the impact, and the next instant the dead creature's companion was standing in the living room. It was so massive it couldn't rise to its full height, but even hunched over, the thing was enormous. From the floor beneath Pete, Janice whimpered. Pete climbed off her, but even as he was getting to his feet, the thing was charging him, howling in a fury Pete had not imagined possible. It threw their dining room table against the wall, the record player, Pete's lazy boy recliner, the creature crashed through their trailer in a hail of fists and kicks, smashing everything. It hit the bedroom doorway, and its shoulders blew the frame apart, bringing down part of the wall. Somehow Janice had managed to get to her feet. She tried to lunge past it, but the creature caught her by the arm and slung her against the wall with so much force all the picture frames bounced off the walls and crashed to the floor. But the creature didn't let go. It held her by her elbow, thrashing her around like a dog with a stuffed animal. Janice screamed, and Pete stood frozen in fear. The creature ripped her arm from the shoulder. Blood gushed onto the floor and onto the bed. Janice's dark face went white as the snow outside, and still the creature wouldn't let go. The next instant, it had hoisted her body into the air, face up to the ceiling. It grunted and pulled at her head and neck, and the next instant, Janice was ripped in two. When it turned to Pete, it still held Janice's head in one of its enormous hands. No, he said, shaking his head. No. The creature roared at him. It threw Janice's head to the floor and charged him, but not before Pete brought the pistol up and fired. The creature took the first shot in the chest at point-blank range. It flinched backwards, the back of its head crashing into the ceiling, its arms flailing at the air. Pete fired again and again, and the creature staggered backwards out into the living room. It was bleeding from several places now, its chest wet with both Janice's blood and its own. 
It tripped over the lazy boy and howled again. On the floor next to the bed, Pete fumbled through his pockets for the speed loader. All his gross motor skills were gone. His hands were shaking so badly he could barely work the cylinder open to reload. Somehow he managed to dump the spent shells onto the floor and drop in the speed loader. But when he finally got the gun loaded, the creature was gone. He blinked at the empty trailer. It had all happened so fast. A voice in the back of his mind said, I did it. I drove it off again. But you're not getting away from me. He stumbled toward the screen door and out into the snow. He thought he saw a dim shape running towards the trees, but he couldn't tell for sure. Regardless, it was too far away to run after it. He'd never catch it. Pete stood there for a long time. He wasn't sure how long, but eventually the little square between his trailer and the commissary started to fill up with people. Watch it! He's got a gun! Pete turned towards the voice. He saw a lot of frightened faces staring back at him. He sagged down to the ground, utterly exhausted. The men kept their distance. Pete didn't blame them. What must they think of him anyway? He began to laugh at how ridiculous they looked cowering in the shadows. He wanted to tell them the worst was over. Pete wasn't mad anymore, and he sure as hell wasn't going to hurt anybody. That wasn't the kind of man he was. As if to prove it to them, he threw the gun towards the commissary, then hung his head between his knees and waited. More muttering. Someone got up the nerve to go into his trailer. He heard them go inside, and then a few moments later rush back out again and vomit on the sidewalk. "'What is it? What happened?' Pete heard somebody say. "'Jesus, it's awful,' another man answered. "'Somebody go and call the cops.' Pete made no effort to move. What did it matter? He had his proof. Op-ed piece from the Kimberly, B.C. Times, November 12, 1981 written by Mrs. Doris Williamson. And I'd begrudge them that. They have as much right to make their little horror picture as anybody. But we are honest, hard-working people here in Kimberley, and those horror movie types are probably all Satan worshippers. It is bad enough that man brutally murdered his wife, but what kind of sadistic human being kills his own dogs and mounts her head on a spike? That's Satanism, if you ask me, and it's simply horrible. The End that was Joe McKinney's Pete's Big Break, as read by me. I've put a link to my personal site in the show notes, but I think you've heard enough about me for the evening. And that will be our story for the evening, Children of the Night. Join us again next week for another installment of Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. 
juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.